Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Chris Smith brings us the latest science news, along with tales of his adventures in Australia. We'll be hearing how exposure to alcohol as an adolescent may change your perception of risks, at least in rats, and how scientists are studying the amazing 5,000-kilometre migration of eels, plus how it feels to be trapped in the path of hundreds of thousands of tonnes of bright red dust. That's all on the way. It's time to welcome back Dr. Chris. Chris, it's nice to have you back. Oh, it's fantastic to be back, although somewhat jet-lagged after a slightly trying 36 hours in the air. So oh, speaking, 36 are. hours. I'm not at all surprised. There were two Thursdays last week, but I'm getting over it. <laughs> well, you can't complain at gaining an extra day, I'm sure. Now, we're, we're going to find out where you've been and what you've been up to in just a minute. But first, what was it that caught your eye in the science news this week? Well, one story which I think is quite telling was an item which is published in the journal PNAS this week and it looks at the question of alcohol and alcohol abuse because for a long time we've known that people who abuse alcohol tend to be very bad at making decisions and particularly gambling type decisions, weighing up options. Should I take the gamble and go for a big, a big possible win or should I take a surefire smaller win? The big question, though, was do people who are prone to drink too much, are they just also prone to make bad decisions or does the alcohol make them more prone to make bad decisions? So a group of researchers over at the University of Washington in Seattle, this is Nicholas Nasrallah and his colleagues, decided to set out to answer that question. Now, they've done this in rats because obviously it would be rather unethical to try and use human teenagers, which is what they're interested in trying to understand, the effect of alcohol on the developing brain. But rats are actually a very good model for how human brains make decisions. The only slight snag is that unlike teenagers, you can't get teenage rats to want to drink too much, which is rather surprising. But they found a way around the problem. What they did was to develop the rodent equivalent of vodka jelly. (laughs) And these rats will imbibe and they can get sustained high intake of of alcohol over a period of time in these rats. And after they've given these uh, adolescent rats uh, this this, um, alcohol-impregnated gel for a period of time, they then start giving them a gambling task to do. So what the rodents do is they're made slightly hungry, so they want to participate in the research, which involves giving them food rewards, and they offer them a choice. The first choice is they can have a small outcome, two food pellets, but they'll definitely get it. Alternatively, they could have a high-risk gamble, and they may get four food pellets, but the more times that they do the trial, the less and less likely they are to get those four food pellets. Now, if you do this with normal animals that have not been exposed to alcohol, they quite quickly cotton on to the fact that they might do quite well to start with, but later it's much better to take the surefire win situation because you're going to get something, you're not going to get left with nothing. But these rats that have been exposed to alcohol consistently, time after time, made the wrong decision. They couldn't learn that if they kept taking the gamble, it was going to have a bad outcome. And they kept going for the high-risk outcome, and they in the end became croppers as a result. Now, this isn't just because they were drinking alcohol at the time. This was in some cases up to three months after the exposure to the alcohol had stopped. And so the researchers are saying, well, perhaps the alcohol is in some way affecting the way in which the teenage, the adolescent brain, is wiring itself up. 
Maybe it's triggering a condition called perseveration, which is where the brain struggles to size up the scale of a problem and then change its behaviour accordingly. It's almost like the brain gets locked into one path of action and finds it very difficult to add additional variables or parameters so that it changes its outcome. But it's very informative because it says to us, look, if we're not careful with young humans, if they take sustained exposure to alcohol as many are doing, then it could be that they are changing the way that their brain works and they're going to be cruising for a cognitive bruising later because this will lead them to maybe make bad decisions when they're older. That's very interesting. So do we think it's possible that we can really draw inferences about this, about human risky behaviour? Because, of course, risky behaviour doesn't just mean you know gambling. It doesn't just mean slot machines, things where you may or may not win more money. But it includes going into dangerous places. It includes taking part in dangerous sports. And, of course, risky things like unprotected sex. Yeah, and sex aside, also doing things like other drugs, not making good decisions with your money and thinking that if I spend this much money on this particular project, I've got a very good chance of winning when in fact maybe you haven't. And it's weighing up those pros and cons and making the right decisions that make you successful in life. Well, perhaps these people are putting themselves at risk of therefore having bad luck in future. And that's because they've been exposed to alcohol a lot when they're younger. So the, the evidence is that perhaps we should look at this and say to people, look, you know, you could be affecting the way your brain is going to work in future, so don't abuse alcohol. But it's important not to confuse this with a social drink of watered-down wine with the family at dinner on a Sunday because that kind of alcohol exposure is almost certainly not going to have this kind of effect. The animals in this study were being exposed to what would equate to quite sustained heavy drinking, the, the kind that you do see in nightclubs, but actually which you have to actually try quite hard to achieve. So, in other words... A family drink is not going to do this, but probably being exposed to high levels of alcohol chronically is bad and it can probably produce this behaviour in humans. And do rats have a similar adolescence to humans as well? Do they have a period where there's rapid changes in physiology and you get brain development that that then stops at the end of their adolescence? Well, they don't paint their bedrooms black. Um, (laughs) They don't turn into goths. But yes, they do seem to show very similar behavioural changes as they go through the rodent equivalent of adolescence, which is why people think they're a fairly good model for for what's happening in in the young human brain. That's certainly something to keep an eye on then. Now, you practically migrated to Australia um, a, a couple of weeks ago. Luckily, we've got you back. But also migration has been in the science news. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, this, because if you look at animals around the world, they, they all move around. It's not just humans that move around. And there are two really interesting papers this week. One of them is a paper looking at eels. And eels are a hot topic because as well as being uh, the thing that you put into jelly eels and which many people find very, very tasty, eels are in decline. Their numbers have gone down enormously in recent years. And they're actually an animal which we know very little about. But they make a huge migration. They go 5,000 kilometres from Europe all the way across to the North Atlantic to a place called the Sargasso Sea, which is where they mate and reproduce. And if we're to try and conserve this species, we need to understand how they do that, how they make this journey and what the parameters of that journey are, because if we don't understand anything about the species, how can we save them? thing is that how do you track a a fish, an animal that's swimming underwater, sometimes a 1,000 metres underwater? Well, there's a group of researchers at the Technical University of Denmark, and this is Kim Aronstrup and her colleagues. They've got a paper in Science this week, and what they've done is to build very small 
and satellite transceivers, which they can put onto the eels. They released 22 eels from the west coast of Ireland, let them go, let them swim off in November 2006. And every time these eels surfaced, the satellite transceiver would upload data on where the eel was, so its position, and also where it had been in the water column and details about the water uh, environment it was experiencing on its way. And what they were able to do is to reconstruct some of the eel's journeys up to a distance of about 1,300 kilometres. So they've basically got a quarter of the way towards the Sarcasso Sea. So this is being very, very informative, and it's a short paper in Science which basically says this gives us some of our first insights. And the really interesting thing is that these eels, um, after they depart, they travel about 25 kilometres a day. And the researchers say, well, that's actually too slow to get where they need to go by April, which is when they need to get to the Sargasso Sea to mate. So what are they doing? Well, they think actually what they do is swim down to Africa and then hitch a ride on a fast-moving ocean current, which helps them to speed up and get the rest of the way much more quickly. But one other really intriguing bit of data was that the eels change their height in the water column between day and night. So during the daytime, they swim much deeper. They go down to about a 1,000 metres, and at night time, they come up close to the surface. Now, lots of animals do this because they come up at night time to warmer water to feed, but eels don't actually, on their way to the Sargasso Sea, actually eat anything. They don't feed. So why are they doing it? And what the researchers think is that the warmer water uh, up near the surface is bad news because it speeds up the eel's metabolism and it makes them uh, mature faster because they need to make sure they're reaching sexual maturity when they reach the Sargasso Sea to mate. So by swimming along most of the time at deeper water and therefore lower temperatures, they're actually slowing down their development, and this means that they're in a position to be just in the right place uh, at the right stage of development, so when they get to the Sargasso Sea, they can mate. So it's an intriguing bit of research. That's amazing. They're clearly very interesting animals. Um, And just quickly, you were caught in the dust storm. Yeah, um, obviously I was in uh, Australia because I went there to give a talk in Brisbane, uh, which is at a, at a conference, and that, which is about halfway up the east coast of uh, um, Australia. And then I flew down to Adelaide, which is down in the bottom at the middle of Australia, to give a talk there and to do some interviews with some people. Then I went over to Sydney to see some friends of ours at, at the ABC, the Australian equivalent of the BBC. And I woke up on the Wednesday morning and I thought uh, I'd gone mad. Because, you know, when you first wake up, you're not sure if you your brain's actually playing tricks on you. Well, I woke up and the room was orange. And I thought, nah, there's something funny about this. And I went back to sleep. And I woke up again about 10, 15 minutes later. And I thought, no, the room really is orange. And I thought the city was on fire, this funny colour that was coming into the room. And I ran to the window and I looked out and I couldn't see the end of the street. The whole street was bright orangey red and the cars were all orange. It was like a very dense fog, but bright red. And it turns out that what what was happening is a very big storm over central Australia and the south part of Queensland, the state higher up the coast of Australia uh, above Sydney, had whipped up enormous amounts of topsoil. And the topsoil in Australia is very rich in iron oxide uh, rust. And that's why it's very red. And in fact, when measurements were made, it turns out that this storm was dumping 75,000 tonnes of dust into the ocean every hour that it was blowing this 600-mile-long dust storm across Sydney. Sydney was right in the path of it, and it did clear by lunchtime on uh, Wednesday. 
But I've just heard from my friend Robin Williams, who presents the science show, flags it science show in Australia, and he said the dust is back today, oh, no. and this time it's brown, which is not, <laughs> not very nice. So it's presumably come from a slightly less iron oxide rich bit of Australia this time, but certainly a worry. They've never seen anything like this for well more than 100 years. The photos I've seen were incredible. It must have been very surreal. It was pretty weird when normally the temperature there should be nice and high, it should be clear and sunny, and to be driving to work in that, and and it was very unpleasant because it got into all the buildings and you'd be sitting trying to have a conversation with somebody and every time you took a breath in to to, to sort of breathe to speak, you'd feel this sort of cloying heaviness mm. in the back of your throat because it was so dry and it was very unpleasant. Lots of people ended up going to hospital with um, respiratory problems being exacerbated by the dust. The one benefit, though, was that it actually made riding in the lift, which was air-conditioned, a lot more pleasant because it was the <laughs> one place where the air was actually OK. <laughs> well, as long as you could put up with the tinned music which I'm sure would be awful, as it always is in lifts. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us, Chris. We will give you a few more days to recover from your jet lag, and then we'll expect you back on the show next week. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. See you soon. That was Chris Smith reporting on his own adventures in Australia, but also on this week's science news. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Well, that's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, featuring Chris Smith and produced by me, Ben Valsler. As always, there's plenty more science available on our website and in our other podcasts. You can find them all on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another roundup of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.